Uh, my name's Nick. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going through the book of Philippians. Gabby already said um, that uh, we've handed out to the first 50 these uh, Philippian journals. To those of you that were too slow on the uptake, um, they are three bucks, but they're great because they have a blank page. You can follow on. You can um, write sermon notes. You can um, avoid checking your fantasy score on your phone by using the journal with a pen and paper. Um, and I'm just going to dive right in. We uh, started last week where we looked at the birth of the Philippian church out of Acts 16. And right now we are in Philippians. I'm going to be reading Philippians 1, 1 to 11 out of the ESV. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, he's from Texas, for you all, making my prayer with joy, y'all. Um, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so, and, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that even though uh, this was not written to us, it was written for us. I want to thank you for the fact that we are not uh, coming to some kind of academic writing. We are coming to the re revealed Word of God. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, for you to be present. Um, as we listen, I ask for your leading and guiding. I want to pray that I would be faithful to the text, and I want to pray, Spirit of God, that you would make us open to what it is that needs adjustment and reminder and maybe even repentance in our hearts. Amen. So last week we ended uh, where a church was founded um, out of some very exciting uh, opportunities. We're talking about earthquakes, we are talking about jailers, we are talking about demon-possessed girls being freed, we're talking about an uproar in the city, we're talking about magistrates getting in trouble. And so now this letter is written about 10 years after that. We know that Paul returned to Philippi because in, um, in Acts 20, it tells us that he went back very much like his pattern was, once he, he had planted a church, he went back to strengthen the brothers. Um, but he's writing from prison. Um, he's chained to a prison guard. We'll talk about more uh, that more in the weeks to come. And he is close to death. He, uh, he has uh, sent Epaphroditus back to the Philippians, and Epaphroditus has come to him, and he's, he's brought them a gift. Now, it's important to understand that when you were in prison in those days, there was no um, ACLU. There was no kind of uh, feeding of any of the prisoners. There wasn't any human rights watch. 
they basically left you in prison. And it was the responsibility of your friends and family to feed you if you were sick, to give you medication. No one cared about you in those contexts. And so when you were in prison, it was a very practical necessity for people to come and to give you the things that you needed. This was not just for emotional support. This was for very practical reasons. When, um, when Karen and I started uh, dating, Karen used to send me letters. Um, and those of you that are old enough to remember what a letter is, it's, uh, it's a piece of paper that you write on and you, you fold it, you put it in an envelope, and there's this thing called a stamp. You, you have to buy it at a thing called a store. It's a brick and mortar thing. You actually walk in, you give your money, and you buy a stamp, and you put it on there. And I remember that we would get our mail like every Friday, and I remember the sense of anticipation uh, that I would have when I would get a, a letter from Karen. Um, and I was just excited because we had started dating. I, I, there wasn't the sense of anticipation which the Philippians must have been experiencing. Is he dead? Is he alive? Where is he? What's happening to him? What are we supposed to do? And so can you imagine the, the tenderness with which they're opening this letter? And, and, hey, Epaphroditus is back, everyone. I wonder if he has a letter from Paul. He does? Everyone, come, gather around, gather around. Uh, and, and, and that's the, the sense of anticipation with which they're reading this letter. I love this letter. It's a happy letter. This is one of uh, uh, Paul's happy letters. Most of the time, Paul um, is responding to some kind of major heresy. So in the churches that he's planted, he's heard that things are going seriously pear-shaped, and he's like, God, I better write a letter, you know. Um, but this is a happy letter. In fact, joy is mentioned over 16 times um, in this letter. It drips with joy and affection. And it also says something of who Paul was. Uh, remember, if, uh, if you had met Paul at, when, while he was planting the church, you'll remember that this church was founded when Paul and Silas were singing psalms and hymns in the context of prison. Um, and so now they receive this letter from him. He's written it for three main reasons. Number one, he's written it to say thank you. Uh, this is really an extended thank you letter. Um, this is one of those where he's saying to Epaphroditus, send this letter and thank them for the investment that they've made in my life. And then Epaphroditus says, yeah, there's also a couple things going on in the Philippian church you should be aware of. And some of those are some, um, some false gospels that are being preached. And then there's this problem in terms of relational disunity that we'll get to in chapter 4. So those are the reasons that he's written this letter. But I love the fact that the letter is introduced with a deep sense of humility. It's motivated by humility. A couple of years ago, uh, there was a... Uh, um, he, he was a South African movie star, and he was on a plane... And uh, he's six foot four, and so, so he was in the economy section, and, um, and so he just started walking up to, you know, to business class. And, uh, and the stewardess says, I'm sorry, sir, you know, this is reserved for business class passengers, you know. And, and so he says to her, do you know who I am? And, and, and she says, oh, my goodness, just wait here, sir. I'm so sorry. Hang on a second. And so she walks into the economy, and she says, excuse me, everyone. I'm so sorry to get your attention, but does anyone know who this is? He's forgotten who he is, you know? <laughs> that is, when anyone tells you, do you know who I am, that is the best response I've ever heard. I don't know what happened uh, to the stewardess, but I want to shake her hand, man, you know? <laughs> There is not the sense of, do you know who I am, when Paul in introduces himself. Um, we have a number of doctors and professors in the context of this 
congregation, and you probably don't know who they are. And part of that is because they don't introduce themselves with, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so, or hi, I'm Professor So-and-so. The way we introduce ourselves screams the posture that we hold. Uh, you know, I've, I've, um, I've had encounters with people that ask me to call them Dr. So-and-so. So imagine how well that goes, you know. <laughs> Paul says, the first thing that he says is, Paul and Timothy, servants, bond servants, doulos. In other words, slaves. There, there is an irony in this, in that he, he is literally a slave. He is chained right now. But this is not about his current circumstance. This is about the posture of his heart. This is how he is choosing to introduce himself to the Philippian church, some of which don't know him because he hasn't been there for about 10 years. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The other thing that I think we miss sometimes is, is the idea of Paul and Timothy. Now, I want you to do a little study. Go to every single letter that Paul wrote, and the only letters that he wrote by himself were letters directly to individuals, where he wrote to Timothy and where he wrote to Titus. The rest of the letters are written within the context of a team. Now, many people will tell you, well, they're just scribing. When you read Acts, you realize these are not just scribes. These are people that Paul recognized as necessary, effective members of his team, Paul and Timothy. He's not just doing this as a tag. You know, when, when Karen gives gifts to people, she, she, she usually makes gifts, um, and she gives these amazing gifts to people, and then she writes this amazing card, and she signs it, Nick and Karen. So right now, this morning, this wasn't even planned, um, Enid comes up to me and she says, thank you for my blouse. And I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> she said, you didn't know about this, did you? I'm like, no, I didn't. <laughs> This is not what Paul is doing. Paul is not just adding Timothy's name to kind of cover Timothy. What Paul is showing the Philippian church right from the very start is that team is important, that we need each other, and that Paul needs Timothy, and Paul needs the Philippians, and Paul needs Epaphroditus, and they need each other. And so right from the beginning, in the context of this letter, we understand a number of things, uh, that Paul is a humble man that understands his need of other people. That's important for us, because we live in an age of rampant individualism. The other thing that's important to recognize is that the church has developed specific functions. Uh, Paul writes to all the saints that are in Philippi with the overseers, the leaders, and the deacons, the servants. This church has been around long enough in order for there to be specific leadership roles. And, and that's important. It's not, it's not important because we want to separate people it's important because everyone has equal value but different function. And later on, Paul is going to help the people understand how to play their specific function. But what he's doing like a genius is he's starting with who? Who does he start with? He starts with the saints. Oh, with the overseers and the deacons. Now, generally speaking, if I were to do a convocation, I would say, Mr. President, the board, um, eminent trustees, faculty, and students. And he does it the other way around. He says, saints of God, everyone, slaves, masters, children, everyone, this is for you. This letter is for you. My encouragement is to you with the overseers and the deacons. 
Later on in chapter 4, we find out that there actually is a specific leader of this congregation, and he calls him my fellow yoke, yoke worker. Um, in other words, my, my fellow partner in all of this. And he gives him a specific task. In chapter 4, he says, look, there are these two women fighting, and we're going to talk about this later on when we get there. And I want you to make sure that you help them come to a place of unity. And so there is specific leadership roles that are identified, but not from a hierarchical perspective, from a functional perspective. His prayer is a prayer that is motivated by joy. How many of us pray motivated out of joy? A lot of us pray motivated out of fear. A lot of us pray motivated out of anxiety. A lot of us pray motivated out of stress or confusion or pain. A lot of us pray motivated even out of a sense of our own human desires. When I came to faith, I was a, um, I was a senior, and we played a game called cricket, which is nothing like baseball. Um, it is way more interesting. And, um, but it is similar in the fact that there's a bat and a ball. And, um, and, and I just come to faith, and I remember praying uh, that I would hit the, uh, the, the, the previous game, I'd hit the equivalent of a Grand Slam. And, and I, I was like, this was my prayer. Now I had God on my side. <laughs> then I did it. So my prayer was, God, I want to do that again, you know? And I asked this friend of mine, and I said, is it okay to do that? And she said, it's okay to do that. But aren't there more important things that you could be praying for? You know what, what I loved about the way in which I was discipled by Vornine is that she, she, she did the kind of discipleship that, that happened here. It's like, you know, that's not okay, let me, let me lead you into a clearer direction. But it's not out of malice. I just didn't know. I was like, if God can help me do this, I'm going to ask Him to help me do this. Um, and sometimes we're praying out of these desires that aren't necessarily evil, but there are greater reasons that we can pray. And Paul is saying, man, I, out of a sense of joy, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for y'all, Making my prayer with joy. It's there. It's in the Bible. That's what, you know. Making my prayer with joy. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm so glad we're in this together. Christ suffered. I'm suffering. Epaphroditus is, has suffered. You're suffering. And that's okay. Because we will see Jesus. And that's okay. His prayer of joy is divided into what he's grateful for, what he's reminding them of, and what he is specifically praying for them. So what is he grateful for? He's grateful for gospel partnership with sacrifice. Verse 5 and verse 7 say this, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Verse 7, You are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This financial gift and practical sustenance that the Philippian church had given him was not just a show of deep affection. It was. It was, we love you, Paul, and we want to make sure that you don't die. That's a good thing, right? But we also understand that in the context of your imprisonment, there is a task that God has given you, and we want to join you in that task. Because if you knew Paul, you knew that wherever he went, he was going to preach the gospel. Whatever circumstance he was in, he was going to make much of Jesus. We're going to get shipwrecked on the island of Malta. I don't know what to do. Let's plant a church. Sure, let's do that. 
I'm going to get imprisoned in Rome. I don't know what to do. You know what? I'm going to preach and I'm going to be invited and I'm going to be in a home where the dignitaries of the city are going to come to me and I'm going to proclaim the gospel. Whatever his circumstance was, he was saying, how can I use this to glorify Jesus? And the Philippian church is joining him in doing that by providing him what he practically needs to be able to do that. This partnership and partakers is a business term. It means joint financial venture with equal risk, equal investment, and equal reward. It's intentional and sacrificial. And it's not just a kind of blasé, let's connect for mutual benefit. This is not a networking thing. You know, many of you guys go in the context of, of networking relationships, and, and the question is really, how can I leverage this relationship for my benefit? We spoke about this last week. Uh, gospel relationships that exist for the proclamation of the fact that Jesus is king and drawing the world back to himself exist only for the benefit of others, not for mutual benefit. And it's funny because when, when I think to myself, I exist for your benefit, and when you think you exist for my benefit, then things work great. And that's exactly what's happening with the Philippian church. Philippian church is saying, we want to do whatever we can to enable Paul to do whatever he can. And Paul is saying, guys, I want to invite you into this because there will be an inheritance and a fruitfulness from the ministry that comes through in Rome because of your faithfulness to the gospel. He's grateful for their partnership. He's grateful for the fact that they themselves are enduring suffering for the sake of the gospel and that they are practically engaged. And this is important that they are not ashamed of him. You know, when you were in prison, in those, you're a criminal. So someone comes in and says, so who planted this uh, church? Oh, he's, uh, he's in prison right now. Um, that's not the way that growth experts tell you to grow a church, right? You know? And so, no, let's, you know what, let's, let's be quiet about what happened to Paul. As people come in, you know, when we invite them to the visitor's lunch, let's say nothing about him, because after all, he's in prison. And it's the opposite. I mean, they, they glory in the fact that this is a man who actually came with a message of grace that followed acts of power, that enabled us to step into relationship with Jesus so that we saw the same things come through our hands and we're going to glory in the fact that he is in prison preaching the gospel. The complete different perspective. What else is he reminding them of? He's reminding them that this is his work, not ours. And I am sure, I am utterly convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note practically uh, that there were two times where the Philippian church helped Paul financially. Now, the first time was in Athens, when, when he was in Athens, and Timothy came with a gift from the Philippian church that enabled Paul to actually um, shift from tent-making to full-time kind of preaching the gospel. This is the second time that they've joined him in terms of financial partnership. So he is talking... The work that he's talking about is kind of a dual role. He's talking specifically about their financial generosity, but he's talking much broader than that. And he's talking about this community of faith that has been founded, that they have been faithful to. They have a shared inheritance in the gospel seed that Paul is sowing in Rome. And it's also important because it's not unreasonable for some of the Philippians to be a little bit discouraged that Paul is in prison. 
it's not unreasonable for them to be in a place where they're saying that when they're saying, well, hang on a second. I mean, you know, we don't have Paul. Epaphroditus nearly died. Um, we don't even know where Timothy is. We haven't seen Silas in ages. What, God, what's going on? And Paul is saying, it is God who started this. It is God who will complete this. He does not say that when I planted this church with sacrifice, pain, and miraculous works, he doesn't say that when God planted this church, I will bring it to completion or vice versa. He reminds them, this is God's work. As a community of faith, this should give us a real sense of confidence, but it should also give us a sense of great trepidation. When we mess with God's church, we mess with another man's wife, the bride of Christ. So when we read this, it is God who began and will finish this. There is a sense in which, yes, we are included in that, but as we serve and love His church, there is also a sense of, of just kind of holy awe of understanding what we've been invited into. God started this. God will finish it. And God will never start something that he will not finish. Now what Paul says, until the day of Christ Jesus, until the day of his return. And so, and so some of us feel like we are unfinished. Some of us feel like we're broken. Some of us feel like we're unproductive, like something's missing. And one of the things that we have got to come to terms with is that God is at work in that. God started something in your life. God will bring it to completion. God started something in your life. He will not leave you unfinished. I cannot tell you how many unfinished projects are littered in my garage. So many great ideas. I mean, and it's not just me. It's Karen's too. It's like, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? And, and, and then... And then every six months, we argue about whose stuff we're going to throw out. And most of us are like that. We're great initiators, but we're not great finishers. And one of the things we need to do is not just muscle up. One of the things we need to understand is this. And this is a theme throughout Philippians. We'll see it when we get to chapter 4. It is a joining God in His work. It's not just sitting in your lazy boy and watching God do something. It's a joining God in His work. And so in this, God will complete that which he started. I am sure of this. There will always be a sense in which we are a work in progress until Jesus returns. There will always be a sense in which there is more Christ-likeness than I can achieve. But this is important. When Paul writes to Timothy, he says this very interesting thing. He says, make sure that people can see your progress. And one of the things that we need to focus on is not whether or not we're stuck or whether we're perfect, but whether we are making progress. And that's one of the ways that we can mark the effectiveness of the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. Not whether we've reached perfection, but whether there is progress. May your progress be evident to all, Paul says to Timothy. Why? Because that is encouraging. Sean and I were talking last night. It's not encouraging for me to sit down with Sean and say that, you know, for years and years of my life, I've struggled with this sin, and I am so grateful that I'm fully accepted by God, and I am, and I'm so grateful that I'm fully loved by God, and I am, but I've made absolutely no progress in that area. That's not what God desires for us. 
Now we know that until the day of Christ Jesus, there won't be perfection. But ultimately, what I want to call us to as a community is this. If God started this, let's join Him as He moves towards finishing it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's be a community that moves from glory to glory, from strength to strength, and faith to faith. Not in the power of our own strength, but in saying, God, you started this. You will finish this. You are the one that empowers us to do this. Please help me to join you as you do this. The other thing that he's reminding them of is that he likes them. And he misses them. You know, um, you are at ease when you know someone likes you. You're more nervous when you're not sure if they like you. And when you're more nervous, what do you tend to do? You tend to make more mistakes when you're nervous. So you walk into a room and you're, you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know that Nick likes me. Um, and so I just better make sure that like, I don't mess up. And, and so your focus is on not messing up and you mess up. You know, Karen says that I have a resting angry face. You know? and, so, and so my resting look is angry. You know? And, and, and I need to adjust that because sometimes people misunderstand that. It's part of the re reason I, I trim my beard because I look less angry without a bigger beard. You know? <laughs> but Paul is, is, is reminding them. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, those of you that have been Christ followers, this sounds like John. It sounds like the beloved disciple. It's like opens his mouth and love is just oozing out, right? This is, he's called the, 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 the apostle of love. John is, is called that. This does not sound like Paul. And those of you that have, that have traveled a little while in the, in the context, this does not sound like the guy who got annoyed and exercised a demon out of a girl because he got annoyed. This does not sound like, like someone saying that th there are people that I wish would castrate themselves. This does not sound like a guy that, that just goes off in the book of 2 Corinthians and just reminds people of what he suffered for the gospel. This doesn't sound like the same guy. It's the same guy. It is the same guy. He was not stoic or reserved, even though he had every right to be. He was expressing his love and affection for this family that joined him in partnership in the gospel. You can be focused, goal-orientated, driven and loving. It is possible. One of the things about team that I love in the context of, of Mercy Commons is the fact that our leadership team challenges each other in the, in, in the areas in which we're weak. This is an area where, where CJ has personally challenged me. Nick, it's important for people to know that you like them. <laughs> Why are you all laughing? You should be, we know that. It's very obvious. Now, I know it's a weakness. I know that sometimes I get really intense, and sometimes there's a sense of just focused and, and drivenness, and, and I need people around me to say, chill. This is God's work. He will bring it to completion. Now, God has made me in this way, and so I'm not throwing that out, but what I am doing is seeing what is modeled here. Man, I need to help people understand that they are valuable, that they are necessary, that they are loved, not because they're a pawn in my machine for world domination, but because they are God's precious children. Pinky in the brain, just those. those <laughs> are you, yeah. 
Joy is not the enemy of right thinking, of wisdom, or discernment and knowledge. It's a natural overflow of right theology. If you have right theology, you fully understand who God is, you will be someone who is wise, discerning, and loving. Love is not opposed to direction. Love is not opposed to instruction. Love is not opposed to correction. And love is not opposed to discipline. It is very in line with the way in which God deals with us. And so Paul is reminding them that I love you and I like you. It's the same thing that so often we need to be reminded of. That God loves us and likes us. He's not in some um, kind of cosmic contract. He chooses to engage us in that way. What is he asking for? This is the last thing where, where Paul is saying, okay, I'm, uh, uh, in this prayer, I want to be grateful about these things. I want to remind you of these things. Remember, we said Philippians is a book telling us to remember to forget. So he's saying, I want to remind you about these things. What is he specifically asking God for the Philippian church? Verse 9 says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more. There is no full stop, no period there. There's a comma. My prayer is that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. What Paul is asking for is that they would lay hold of a knowledgeable love that leads to purity and fruitfulness. A knowledgeable love that leads to purity and fruitfulness. Now we know that knowledge without love leads to cynicism. Now those of us that are prone to that, the most important thing for us in the context of that, if knowledge is more important than love, the most important thing that you can be is right. That's the most important thing. So, so think about this in your life, the way in which you respond in circumstances. If the most important thing to you is being right, then you probably are imbalanced in the knowledge and love scenario. Too much knowledge, not enough love. The counter of that is, if there is too much love without knowledge, the most important thing for you will be to be liked. That will be the most important thing for you. So here we have too much knowledge, not enough love. Your emphasis is, I want to be right. Too much love without enough knowledge or discernment or wisdom. I just want to make sure that I'm liked in those things. Are those things like, it's not wrong to be right. Thank you, Lacey. Okay. It's... It, I mean, there are certain things where we actually need to draw a line in the sand and, and, and actually say this is the way that God intends, us, intends for us to live. There's nothing wrong with that. But when people tend to not live, let their love abound, what they tend to focus on in the context of a community is the unfinished work of Christ rather than the progress that someone is making. And so if you have too much love and not enough knowledge, you're, you're, you're 
you're tending to lean on the fact, and the things that you see in other people is the unfinished work of Christ. Those things that still need work. Now, if you're leaning on this side, um, you are kind of being sucked into a, a, a current cultural vortex, which is this. If you love me, you have to agree with me. If you love me, you have to support my choices. Because if you don't agree with me and if you don't support my choices, then you don't love me. Now, that is not the truth of Scripture. Thank goodness Jesus doesn't agree with me. Thank goodness. I was saying to someone the other day, my, I, the most grateful I've ever been in my life is for unanswered prayer. The prayers that God has not answered where I have laid hold of God and said, please, 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 I want this. And he's like, I love you, and no, you're not getting that. Because I see things way further than you can, and you're not able to see what will happen if you get that. Band, you can come up here. We need love with knowledge, with wisdom. We need the knowledge of God's pattern, what is it that God intended? How does He intend for us to live exemplified in Jesus? We need, we need the knowledge of what the enemy is trying to do. Peter tells us that, that be aware of the plans of the enemy. Be aware of the lies that are being spoken to us. We need to be aware of the desires of our flesh. We need to be, be aware of the message that the world is telling us. All of this stuff is knowledge, but we need to mix that with love. We cannot approve what is excellent without this mixture of love and knowledge. May your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and therefore live in a way that is pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Now, not just good for goodness sake. We're good because God has called us to participate in works of righteousness, in fruitful works that benefit the city and the planet that God has called us to. Verse 11 says, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And every Friday afternoon or Saturday morning, uh, Travis sends through a slack and he says, how can I be praying? Or more specifically, what are you hoping for in this? And so as your elders are praying in terms of what God is doing, this was my, I literally cut and paste this. Um, a sense of deep affection for Jesus and for His church, which leads to a joy that motivates us to push through suffering and inconvenience for the glory of God. A deep affection for Jesus and His church, which leads to a joy that motivates us to push through suffering and inconvenience for the glory of God. And the most amazing thing is that, is that when we look at the gospel, it is, it is a connection of love and knowledge. And, and, and how, Nick? Well, we didn't outsmart God. There, there wasn't the sense in which we put on some disguise and kind of slipped into the people that were acceptable to God. No, He was not obligated to do anything. Uh, there, there is no kind of transactional, legal, spiritual thing that if you say these right words, He pursued us through Jesus Christ. He knows everything about us. Think about this. He knows the intent of the motive of your heart. 
Even before something becomes a mixed motive, he knows that. And yet he still says, I'm going to pursue this person. I know the darkness. I know the brokenness. I know things about you that nobody else knows. And yet I am choosing to pour my love out on you through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was full of love and knowledge. In the garden, he was very aware, very knowledgeable of what he would have to go through. He wasn't taken by surprise. He wasn't saying, this is, I didn't sign up for this. In the garden, he says to his father, can this cup pass from me? Not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus Christ walked on this earth full of love and knowledge, full of love in the way that he extended himself to us, but full of knowledge because he knows what it's like to be human, because he was human, facing the same things that we face. Oh, nobody understands me. No one went through what Jesus went through in a physically physical form. No one went through the kind of pain and betrayal and suffering that he went through. And your brokenness is so huge to you, and it is because it's yours. But you cannot say that he doesn't know that because he does. And on that cross, he experienced something that we never need to experience. He experienced separation from his father when the sin of this world was placed upon him so that he could bring us to a place of love with knowledge. And the Holy Spirit, who then floods our lives with the love of the Father, where we have a tangible sense of connection to the Father because of the sacrifice of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to know the Father. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to love the Father because we can't without Him. It is the Holy Spirit that enables us to know each other and still love each other. It is that Holy Spirit. As C.S. Lewis says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be truly known and fully loved is how God has loved us. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles our self-righteousness and it fortifies us for a difficult life. Father, I just bring my friends before you. And I thank you that we are fully known and fully loved by you. I thank you that there is not a shadow in our hearts that you are not aware of. And yet your love and affection pours out towards us. I want to thank you because of the, the work of Jesus as he brought the kingdom the sacrifice of Jesus as He died on the cross and the victory of Jesus as He was raised on the third day, we can have hope in You. That even we are broken, that even though there's a sense in which sometimes we feel like we're not making prog progress, we can have hope in You. And I want to thank You, God, that as we raise our affection to You in worship now, that Your Holy Spirit will be able to flood us with the love of the Father. Come now, my God. Come now.